0: I'm Sterling Fox in for Roy Green, and today on the podcast, Global's Abigail Beeman has a G7 update from France. Dr. Christopher Lloyd at the University of Leeds in the U.K. will tell us why he's signed on with hundreds of other scientists in a letter to Ottawa. Conservationist Kerry Bowman joins us from Brazil to talk about the military being brought in to fight the Amazon fires. And columnist Mike Smith talks about Andrew Scheer and his quest for an RCMP in investigation into SNC Lavalin this and much more on the Roy Green Show podcast enjoy in the bay of biscay in france abigail beeman is global news reporter covering the G7 summit and is with us again from biarritz france abigail hello hello So yesterday we talked about not a lot because it was they just had dinner and a chance to sort of a a get to know you session as a lot of these leaders are meeting each other, particularly Boris Johnson for the first time. Today, on the other hand, was supposed to be an all business day. What did they get to?
1: Well, the first session uh, had really the headline topic uh, of the summit this year, which is the economy. Uh, that is also tied with the trade war that's going on between the United States uh, and China. So a lot of issues wrapped up there together. But uh, the prime minister, our prime minister Justin Trudeau, has come here saying that the economy uh, is his priority. So that first working session uh, was on the economy, uh, as well as security uh, and uh, strategic and security affairs was the official title of that morning session. So uh, Canadian government officials say that the Prime Minister uh, spoke about the idea that we'd already heard yesterday just in terms of the challenges presented with with the challenges in the economy right now and how uh, trade wars don't help that situation. But I asked a few times whether the Prime Minister came out as strongly as we heard the President of the European Commission yesterday, Donald Tusk, say that trade wars cause recession. Uh, They didn't really answer me as to how strong a line the Prime Minister took, but they did say that the focus was really on solutions to those issues. Um, And important to note that, and we talked about this yesterday, that in terms of solutions and in terms of what all seven of these leaders, some of whom are on different pages, uh, are able to agree upon, the French president has suggested that there won't be a final agreement. You know, they, They might reach consensus or agree on some things, but that we're not expecting to see that final document. And that's still an open question that hangs over uh, this whole summit, what exactly everybody will agree on when we uh, reach the end of it by the end of day tomorrow.
0: It's interesting, your your comments regarding uh, feedback from officials from the prime minister's office. They're kind of circumspect in terms of uh, details, aren't they, Abigail? Because the nature of a G7 summit is supposed to be, I suppose, for lack of a better word, intimacy amongst the leaders. And that requires a certain degree of confidence confidentiality so i guess their officials are more or less sworn to uh, secrecy in terms of the nature the actual substance of the discussions right
1: well that's right and i that's again why there's been so much talk as to whether we will see this final communicate final document because that is how it goes so often where you may not get uh, all of the specifics of what was spoken about but then at the end you have this agreement where you mm-hmm. uh, you know where everybody la- ended up so i think that's why there's been so much focus on whether we will get that and if not well when we understand you know what was agreed to uh and what wasn't there was already some confusion um putting canada aside for a moment there was already confusion that surfaced over Iran and that has been a big story that emerged uh, on the sidelines or outside of that of the strategy sessions here Uh, but uh, there were Reports that last night, after the dinner where they all gathered, there were reports from uh, French media uh, and French officials that Macron said that everybody at the G7 agreed um, that uh, France should take a lead to mediate on Iran, and that France would uh, reach out and uh, and and get messages uh, to Iran uh, about de-escalation uh, of tensions there. And when President Trump was asked about that this morning on his way, and I believe it was to his bilateral meeting meeting with Boris Johnson. Uh, When he was asked about that by reporters, he said, that never happened. I didn't agree on anything. If if France wants to talk to Iran, uh, I can't stop them, but the U.S. will do. uh, We'll continue on our own way and we'll continue uh, on our own path. And then Macron had to come out uh, a little while later this morning and uh, address reporters publicly where he clarified those comments, um, saying that uh, you know there was a misunderstanding here and he never had a formal um, agreement from the G7 that he would be this mediator, but there were some agreements in general on the path forward uh, with Iran. So I give you that uh, example because it's it's a good example of the ins and outs and just how uh, how specific things are and how difficult it can be to to reach a consensus and how you know the little bit a little bit of information that leaks out can cause uh, c- confusion and uh, diplomatic issues there. But worth also noting, while on the subject of Iran, because as I mentioned, that sort of developed into a big Story today. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're the-
0: going on this too.
1: Okay. Okay. Good. So later in the afternoon, um, there was word that Iran's foreign minister had just shown up in
2: France. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: right. So that sort of caused a. Uh, would be one way to put it, and uh, it took a while before that was confirmed. But uh, his his plane had landed at the airport. It was the same plane that he, he's been making appearances uh, across Europe in in the past week. In fact, he met with Macron on Friday, I believe it was. So it, when that plane touched down, and I think it was a, a flight tracker website that first registered that. Because also uh, worth pointing out, the, the airport here is closed, so very close eye on the planes that are that are coming and going. So when that plane showed up, of course, the questions were, uh, who is this? Is he here? And the president, I believe, had another uh, bilateral meeting where he was asked a question from a reporter off the top of it, and he said no comment as to that. And then uh, French officials, as well as uh, an, a spokesperson for the Iranian government, said, well, we were invited here by France. Yes, we can confirm that the foreign minister is in France, invited by France. No, we will not be meeting with the Americans. So uh, development that's is still in the works, you could say. We've got Sure. To hear what what has come out of any whether he has had that meeting uh, with French officials, what has come out of it, whether there are any other meetings at the G7 to do with Iran and where this is going. Uh, but uh, again, another example of how you know things happening on the sidelines can it, it can develop into uh, major events outside of the the planned summit sessions for those well, seven leaders.
0: A very interesting the way that Macron sort of stepped up and then had to take a, at least a half step back in terms of. Advocating uh, to be the leader of, of some kind of reconciliation attempt with Iran, because uh, uh, Trump, of course, clearly has his own beef with Iran, and I don't think needs a filter to uh, to express his sentiments. So uh, it, <laughs> that's it, a good it, way uh, to put it. Yes. Yeah, it, and so your reporting on this is very interesting. And and even though you pointed out that the Iranians have been lobbying heavily across Europe prior to this meeting taking place. Abigail, uh, the fact that the the top guy, the foreign minister himself, showed up and basically crashed the meeting uh, uh, indicates at least some degree of willingness on Iran to come to some kind of terms because it's pretty tense right now.
1: Well, well exactly. So uh, with all of these key players uh, in this in this small French town uh, here it will be interesting to see how this plays out and how it develops um, they I believe right now that we are that they are running behind schedules we are waiting for um, what they call a formal family photo of all the leaders together right. and then another mm-hmm. dinner so I believe that that's where things are right now there's still uh, opportunities for more discussions between them tonight and then a full day tomorrow uh, to close the summit.
0: Abigail, thank you for this. We appreciate your taking the time, and your coverage is just outstanding, and it gives us a real insight into what's going on behind very securely closed doors.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: There's Global's Abigail Beeman joining us from the G7 in Biarritz, France, which now includes the special guest visit from Iran. A group of more than 350 Canadian scientists have penned an open letter following an uproar over whether advertising on climate change should be subject to Elections Canada rules. The signatories said they were profoundly concerned after Elections Canada warned environmental groups that launching campaigns on the perils of climate change during the fall federal vote could potentially require them to register as third-party advisors. One of the scientists who signed on to the letter was Christopher Lyon from the University of Leeds in the UK. Professor Lyon is on the line right now. Christopher, thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, not a problem. So what did you make, first of all, of this um, advisory, shall we say, from Elections Canada in the first place?
3: Well, it seemed uh, it was a bit shocking to, to, to myself and to and... Uh, clearly the 352 other scientists that signed the letter before the deadline. Uh, it really struck us as, as something a bit out of, out of line with what, what other things that we've seen um, around this government, around climate change. Uh, so we wanted some clarification on that.
0: And were you satisfied, because Elections Canada did provide a clarification within 24 hours of receiving that letter, were you satisfied with the clarification they provided?
3: Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know if satisfied is the word that I would okay. use. I okay. Would, I would I would, say that the issue still remains, that, that the, uh, the elections kind of clarification said, as, as I have it here, the law as currently written. Ensures that issues are determined by candidates and political parties, not restricted to anyone. So it seemed to me the election's Canada was saying, "Like, look, we, we understand the law uh, to be this, and to, to to the implications of the law to be such for the election campaign." Uh, now that doesn't really change the fact that, in their interpretation of the law. That issue-based advertising, uh, you know, can be if it's a, be, if it's able to be associated with a political party, uh, might fall, uh, might might, might uh, lead to to fees being charged and registration. Well, that's so, so right. Speak. That's where so, that's so, where you so. cross
0: the elections Canada line, right? If you have a, a statement on climate change, one way or another, uh, bringing certain issues like the Amazon, currently, to the the attention of the Canadian electorate, that's one thing. But I assume the directive was all about and because we have this position on climate change, we encourage you to vote Party X, and that would cross the line, wouldn't it?
3: Well, well, I, I think that might maybe that was the intention. I'm not going to speak for Elections Canada's intentions behind the interpretation of the law, nor am I going to, nor do I have any any sense of, of what the government's rationale for for developing that, that um, clause and legislation. Uh, was but at the same time uh, it, it does open the door to to not just associating an issue with a party but the other the other side of that is whether a party associates itself with an, with a pre-existing issue and that becoming a, uh, an issue of partisanship. right for, well for and, and certainly
0: Mr. Trudeau has indicated Christopher that uh, as far as he's concerned that his party is concerned that's going to be a front and center uh, hot button issue for the entire election campaign. Absolutely, and I think
3: all the parties should have climate change as a front and center hot-button issue, given, given what it is and the implications
0: it has for Canada and Canadians. I, I wonder what your sense is of the appetite for Canadians to, to deal with it as a priority issue uh, come election time, given the other uh, issues on the spectrum that may be of equal or even greater concern.
3: Well, that, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, the polls that that, that we, well, One of the polls that we cite within the letter uh, suggests that 75% of Canadians want action on climate change. Uh, it, it's not an issue that's off Canadians' radar. It may be a controversial issue in terms of how we deal with it, for example, around carbon taxes. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, it is an issue that Canadians
0: dealt with it's on their minds as far as we can see. All right. So with that in mind and with one of the parties already certainly indicating that they are going to prioritize this matter, the conservatives have yet to table a a, an extensive climate change platform. uh, But they're sort of alluding to a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Certainly the Greens and the NDP have made their uh, positions abundantly clear for years. There's there's no need to investigate that too deeply. They're very upfront about it. So it is going to be widely discussed discussed so where do organizations and this is where this is what this directive boils down to where do organizations Christopher and I expect you belong to at least one of them that advocate climate change and uh, the politics surrounding climate change uh, where do you uh, in, where do you jump off in terms of engaging in the discussion being very involved and then all of a sudden realizing wait a second we got to stop right here.
3: Uh it's an interesting question. Uh, the first part, uh, I regardless of any organizations I do or do not belong to, I'm first and foremost a researcher. Mm-hmm. So my concern about climate change relates to the facts of the matter and how we and how those facts relate to society. Okay. Uh, so so when I so when when I'm when I'm looking at any organization discussing climate change, I want to check their accuracy. And any scientist would want to do that. So, if it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, if you're going to talk about climate change, we're, talk to the scientists. We're there to speak to our expertise about what it is that you're saying. Okay.
0: The uh, Chief Electoral Officer of Canada, Mr. Stéphane Perrault, says, quote, the Canada Elections Act doesn't speak to the substance of potential third-party issue advertising, nor does it make a distinction between facts and opinion, close quote. Did that help clarify anything for you?
3: (laughs) I thought that was a fascinating statement on a number of levels. Um, I I mean, distinguishing between facts and opinion is... is Um, I mean, I I think what he's done there potentially is highlight an issue with the way the legislation is written. Um, Now, if if, if Elections Canada and election law and the rules are unable to make a distinction between, let's say you know water and some magical chemical from a cartoon on television i mean we have mm-hmm. a problem there don't we um yeah. so so it's 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 there is there is that question and i'll go back to i'll go back to pro's response that the law is currently written um uh where he states that, that 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 perhaps there is an issue with the way the legislation has been crafted right um now that would be an interesting question to raise with political scientists
0: Exactly. But in the meantime, uh, regardless of the uh, crafting of the legislation and its intent, we are stuck with this interpretation for this round of voting. Oh, and Mr. Perot, the uh, chief electoral officer, did go on to add it's not Elections Canada's role to make that distinction about facts and opinion, no matter how obvious it may appear. Again, going for that neutrality uh, position that Elections Canada is supposed to be famous for.
2: But it's
3: an interesting way to, to, to think about that in this instance. And so I'll go back to what we asked for in the letter was clarity. And if this is the the amount of clarity that we're going that we're able to get from Elections Canada, and that, that could be completely genuine, um, and have no reason to suspect that it isn't, uh, then that raises other questions uh, about and then who we should speak to and and the potential people who could address that.
0: There's a quote attributed you to you rather, sir, on Global News uh, saying that the uh, s- registration process may quote stifle evidence based discussion, and you went on to say that this has been a other chilling precedent. Can you flesh that out for us? How was it a chilling precedent, and how might it stifle evidence-based discussion?
3: Uh, certainly. Before I do that, just one minor correction. Uh, my title is doctor. Uh, Professor is an academic rank and appointment. Um, that uh, that I am not one of those. Okay. Um, so I'll so move on to your question now. Uh, so partisan uh, the question about stifling evidence or the statement about stifling evidence-based discussion mm-hmm. uh, c- came out of the reaction of, of different charities and non-profit organizations and such that had raised this issue in the media. Uh, we, we, I mean, they're the ones that are most affected by this legislation and they're the ones who, who, who received the, the, the advice from Elections Canada over right. the summer. Uh, so so the concern was we were echoing their concerns uh, as scientists that if this was the case and they were they, they had and this the, the the rules around around partisan advertising, etc uh, was going to limit their ability to discuss uh climate change with the public that that was a serious issue especially during an election campaign which in the second part of that quote i I refer to as a crucial democratic process and a critical period for climate action Mm -hmm. um it's it's we're we're in a very very i want to i want to stress this um that that you know there's no more sacred process within within a democracy than, than than an election it defines what it is um and the second part of that is is the government earlier this year uh, declared a climate emergency. Yes, um, and we've also had things like the IPCC's uh, uh, 1.5 degree report that came out, that uh, mentioned that we have about, uh, uh, about about the next ten years till 2030 to to reduce emissions to about 45 percent of their pre 2010 levels. Um, uh it's it's I mean that, that's that's a very short period of time if we want to keep uh, global temperature increases below 1.5 degrees um, beyond that it starts to get really difficult for us we have we're, we're already seeing you know the, the fires in the Amazon we can expect more of these things to happen over time so 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 being able to talk about climate change as an emergency that, that the Canadian government' has uh, within a national election is absolutely key uh, uh, for 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 allowing Canadians to make decisions about about. Which party would best be able to address this
0: Right, Uh, I wanted to just uh, Digress for a couple Of moments, Dr. Lyon As we talk about our Prime Minister And our government and their desire To have climate change front and center During this fall election cycle He's in France today Sitting around a table with uh, Macron and Merkel and uh, Prime Minister Abe from Japan President Trump and so on The G7 is in session And are you, for example example, as a scientist, and Macron is uh, the host of the country from which the Paris Accord emanated, are you uh, looking for any evidence of any discussion of this matter at all by the G7?
3: Of course. And, I mean, the the centrality of what's happening in the Amazon to what the G7 uh, uh, is discussing right now is evidence of
0: that. Okay, so that, that is clearly, Macron said even before the meetings began that the and made some very uh, passionate statements about the lungs of the world, our home is on fire, this is going to be an issue. So that would be the door opener to any further discussion. And we haven't heard, by the way, any substantive uh, reports, or uh, we had a, a reporter from the uh, site in Biarritz, uh, Christopher, just earlier this hour, and she gave no indication of any uh, substance, uh, substantive discussions on the matter of climate change so far, today, the first of the two working days, it's been mostly economic matters.
3: Uh, that's fine. I mean, the, the meeting isn't over yet. We'll see what yeah. comes out of it. Are you optimistic? Uh I don't know. It's a good question. Um, <laughs> we'll see what we'll see what comes out of it. I, I expect, given what's happening in Brazil and and the role the, the, the attention to to, to, to climate uh, that's being given to that or being linked to that, um, uh, that we will see something. Now, now, what is said out of a G seven meeting and what's actually Got substance behind it as we've seen in the past these are, these are things that, that, that are open questions
0: because mm-hmm, there's a lot of uh, political theater involved in these international gatherings uh, so uh, but uh, this for the first time uh, is minus a communique so it's really going to be interesting how they summarize this will we get a, a list of bullet points this is what we did over the last two days or they just going to say goodbye and uh, see you next year We'll we'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, very interesting stuff. Dr. Lyon, thanks very much for giving us some some of your time on a Sunday evening in the U.K. We appreciate this conversation very much, Christopher. Uh, Thank you for having me. Christopher Lyon is a researcher in the University of Leeds in the UK, one of 350-some odd scientists who uh, signed a letter, who uh, co-signed a letter uh, urging uh, Elections Canada to provide clarification on this whole matter of third-party advertising. Joined on the line by Kerry Bowman. Mr. Bowman is a bioethicist and conservationist, and he's on the line from Rio de Janeiro. Kerry Bowman, thank you for joining us. Uh, We appreciate your time. And uh, uh, what can you tell us about this deployment of the military with respect to uh, how quickly that might get to the front lines of fighting the fires?
4: Yeah. Um, I've just come down from the Amazon, and um, there really, really is an awful lot of fire. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I was flying over by both uh, helicopter and Cessna, and uh, there really is more fire than there's ever been. So this military intervention, you know, there's not one fire. There are thousands of fires. So I commend them for doing this. Mind you, they're responding to pressure. But it's not going to be easy. This is a really serious situation.
0: Uh, it, it, we're hearing reports from uh, uh, observers like yourself, Kerry, that it's approaching almost a tipping point. Uh, if this uh, fire isn't brought, uh, these fires, 165,000 of them for crying out loud, if these fires aren't yeah. brought under control uh, and this is allowed to escalate, the area, the Amazon, could turn, parts of it could turn into a savanna, which means it can't ever be returned to the rainforest.
4: Yeah. Well, that's exactly true, that's exactly true, and you know, the earth itself is an ecosystem, and we don't often think of the earth as an ecosystem, but it really is. We cannot allow the Amazon to go down, Um, 20% of our oxygen, uh, there's a concept called sky rivers, and what that is is, you know, the Amazon just pours moisture into the atmosphere from all of the vegetation, and that, that moisture is absolutely needed for the survival of everything. And so this is very serious. And you know, the political situation in in Brazil is such that under the new government, this is far worse than it's ever been.
0: Well, and under the new government, if uh, memory serves, just a few days ago, prior to uh, succumbing to some degree of international pres- pressure, the president, Bolsonaro, actually, uh, at one point, alleged that some of these fires had been deliberately started by NGOs who were upset with losing some funding from the state, and this their, this was their retaliation. You talk yeah. about uh, absurd remarks. I, I I don't think many in the world—I well, I don't think it, anyone— bought it i just can't imagine anyone buying that
4: no and there's zero evidence of that and you know there's been some extremely hostile and almost violent uh, comments towards indigenous people as well and indigenous people of the amazon are absolutely taking the brunt of it Uh, many i was talking to people directly just a few days ago and many of these fires are being deliberately set Mm -hmm. as a means of trying to drive people off their land uh, then other people will move in, squatters essentially. They'll use it as agriculture, which you can only do for a year or two because it's not meant to be agriculture, it's it's forest. And then they would sell it over to agribusiness. So it, it's really, you know, this is not a natural phenomenon that's occurring at all. And... Um, You know, the argument is this is a Brazilian problem. You need to leave Brazil alone. I don't accept that. I would say this is absolutely an international problem in terms of environment and in terms of the human rights of indigenous people.
0: Well, you are, your uh, sentiments are echoed by none no less than uh, the host of the current G7, uh, France's President Emmanuel Macron, who declared quite passionately the other day, our house is on fire, the lungs of the earth are in trouble. This is an international crisis. Kerry, what percentage of the Amazon rainforest has already been destroyed by these fires?
4: Well, it's you know, it's a couple of football fields, what is it, three or four football fields a minute or something of that mm-hmm. scale. So it's just huge. Um, you know, over the last few decades, it's the size of Texas has been lost. Uh, there's a lot more. It, you know, the, the situation was better in recent years. It, it was really slowing down. Um, but part of the tension is a lot of the forest itself is protected indigenous lands, very different than the situation in Canada. So as long as you have indigenous lands, which are, you know, really the way it should be from a human rights point of view, um, the forests will be intact because indigenous people, with few exceptions, will not be cutting down the forest. Right. And those are the people losing their homes as, and the forests are being lost. So by respecting indigenous people, we are really saving and protecting the whole ecosystem of the world in a lot of ways
0: hmm And uh, to this point, though, uh, back to my question, what I'm looking for is some kind of ratio, because we, I mentioned earlier, Carrie, this business of hitting a tipping point beyond mm-hmm. which there's a real jeopardy uh, for the entire ecosystem. So, uh, uh, back to the uh, what what percentage of the forest, how close to the tipping point are we? Let me rephrase. How about that?
4: I, it's, uh, there's people that know about this you know, more thoroughly than I do. But what I do think is no one's sure exactly where that tipping point is. Okay, But a lot of the top researchers think we're reaching that point now. So it's not just how much forest has been cut, it's how dry the forest is as well. And the dryness will spread to other parts of the forest. And in fact, the whole, the whole tipping point begins to shift. But it's a complex equation, and I don't think the question is easily answered. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the lead researchers think we're absolutely nearing that tipping point.
0: Well, according to the Brazilian government uh, today, 44,000 members of the military are now available uh, to be deployed for what they call unprecedented operations carry to uh, put mm-hmm. out the fires. They'll be sent to where they're needed the most, I would assume. That's a significant manpower advantage. Might that uh, be, uh, speaking of tipping points, might that be a point where we can at least uh, put a halt to all of this?
4: You know, I'd like to be optimistic and I'd like to say yes. But as far as I can gather, and I've spoken to a few people about this, the greatest option the military has is helicopter water bombing, because Mm -hmm. otherwise, how do you get in there? And I don't know, to be honest with you, whether the Brazilian military forces can do this without foreign assistance. Um, You know, the United States has already offered foreign assistance. They haven't had a response to that. This could become an international situation where, but Brazil would have to accept that. That's right, and I don't know if they would under these conditions.
0: But Well, you get the feeling that the president would see that as somehow a loss of face and would would uh, probably resist it until, uh, right up to the last possible moment.
4: I think that's a very, very strong possibility. So what? So I now you're. I hope you're wrong, but I don't. I'm not sure you
0: are. Yeah, Yeah. I know. You're a conservationist and a bioethicist. What other efforts can you uh, tell us about in our remaining minute, Kerry, that are being uh, undertaken around the world to bring even more focus on this?
4: Well, people have to say that this matters. And I think it's heartening because a lot of people are saying that. And I don't think we can act too quickly. And I think we have to let Brazil, you know, hopefully rise to this challenge. But if, in fact, they don't, I mean, I really do think boycotts are something that will have to strongly, strongly be considered. And, you know, we're all in this together. Um, We we really have to accept that, you know, non-human life matters as well, forests are life. And, you know, we don't really put a lot of value on non-human life, and we're much too laid back about massacring non-human life. And a forest is that. And there's implications for everyone and everything.
0: Kerry Bowman, thank you for this. We're just thrilled to have finally made contact with you, and we do appreciate the update from Rio de Janeiro today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Kerry Bowman joining us from Rio this afternoon uh, with an update on the Amazon fire situation. Here's the first sentence from a recent column by our next guest. The prime minister is caught up in ethics violations and the conservatives smell political blood in the water. Will the scandal cost Trudeau the election? This uh, post-media columnist and occasional talk show host, Mike Smith, wrote this in the Vancouver province the other day under the headline, Shear Doubles Down on His Demand for Police Probe of Trudeau. Mike Smith joins us from Victoria, B.C. Good afternoon, Mike.
5: Hi, it's Sterling. Yeah, the uh, true the conservatives are just were just delighted to see this SNC Lavalin scandal roar back to life here. The other day, you had the federal ethics commissioner find that Trudeau had broken conflict of interest laws here. So, they certainly are hoping that this thing sticks to Trudeau all the way to election day, and they're going to do their best to make sure it happens. But. You know what? You need to take a look at some of the opinion polls here. Uh, polls don't seem to be budging too much. So maybe Trudeau can weather the storm here. It's going to be interesting to see.
0: It is going to be interesting, and I'm glad you brought the poll thing right up right off the beginning of the conversation, Mike. And it's great to have you on the show, by the way, uh, because you're you're right in terms of I, I had Peter Kent on the other night too, just talking about the same thing, and he said you know the old Baker line: polls are for dogs, blah blah blah, because they aren't uh, sympathetic to what the Conservatives were. hoping for, they were hoping this scandal thing would be a, a really a, a millstone around the prime minister's neck and drag him and the whole gang down. But it's right. just not, it's not impacting yet. Now the question is, because you're a, a an astute political observer, do you think there'll be a, a a whiplash? Though a lot of people just put this to the side because it's summer holidays and their life's too short. But now, once we get back in September, and it's a short window till the uh, a, a election in October. Might there be a comeback, a resurgence in this whole SNC story? Certainly Scheer and company are, are hoping.
5: Yeah, yeah. certainly the conservatives hope that happens. And you're right. I mean, sometimes people don't start paying attention to this stuff until the electual, actual election campaign begins. And mm-hmm. we have seen how campaigns actually do matter. I mean, if you go back to the last federal election campaign four years ago, uh, the polls were just going crazy before the before the uh, campaign began, even, like, the, it looked at one point, like, maybe even the NDP could win the election. Trudeau was in, like, third place. Right, yep. And he ends up winning. So, I mean, yeah, things can turn around very quickly. The polls can notoriously be wrong as well, so you never know. But if you take a look at the way this scandal has been handled by Trudeau, he, Trudeau is playing basically a weak hand on this scandal but he's playing the cards in his hand as strong as he can and he's doing that by emphasizing the jobs argument so it's every time he's asked about this now he says i'm not going to apologize for protecting jobs in canada by protecting the interests of this company SNC-Lavalin don't forget that's a quebec company right he- head office in montreal the Liberals got a big lead in the polls in Quebec, and it's in a very important political battleground for them. So, but so so far, Trudeau seems to be weathering the storm, but you never know. Things can turn around
0: quickly. Well, and here's another important part about that very entertaining column you wrote the other day, Mike, and that's the fact that you actually went to the president of SNC-Lavalin, or at least to the Canadian Press Archives, and dredged up some, some comments made by the top dog down there at the SNC about these jobs, and basically he said... Look look, uh, 9,000 jobs would never have been lost. We have really good people. They would have gotten other jobs with other similar companies in a heartbeat. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh,
5: no, that's right. And Neil Bruce is the president of SNC-Lavalin, and he was asked about the whole jobs argument because, remember, if this company was to be to be get convicted on some of these very serious criminal corruption charges that they're facing, they could face a ban on bidding on government contract work in Canada, which could be right. very damaging to the company.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And he was asked about that, and he said, would you have to lay off a whole bunch of your workers if that happened? And he said, look, even if we did lose some of our people, uh, they're very highly qualified, highly experienced people. They'd turn around and get a job somewhere else. So I think Sheer would be wise to remind voters of that, that every time Trudeau plays this jobs card, there's an, another flip side to it that, well... You know, just because snc lavalin would potentially be banned from bidding on contracts, other companies would get those contracts, and those are good jobs, too. So the argument is maybe a little hollow, but it's a good one for Truda to make, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of this, because Mr. Shear has been saying since uh, uh, the Ethics Commissioner's report came out, his best move so far has been to use the word guilty. Mario Dion, the Ethics Commissioner, did not. However, he took th- 63 pages to very carefully detail some pretty nefarious activities. So uh, Shear summarizes it all in one word, guilty. And then, uh, uh, right after that, indicates that he's going to go to the Mounties and uh, pre- present the case to them or request uh, an investigation. So all we know from the Mounties since that uh, that reaction and the guilty charge a couple of weeks ago now, Mike, is the only comment that I'm aware of from the Mounties is, we have received a request for an investigation, we're looking at it. Period.
5: Sure, the Mounties will take a look at it, but uh, the Mounties' usual policy on this kind of thing is to neither confirm or deny that an investigation is going on. Now, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former attorney general, sort of at the eye of this storm, Mm -hmm. she did reveal the other day that she was contacted by the RCMP back in February when the whole scandal first erupted, and now that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the Mounties were investigating at that time. They could have been making just some preliminary inquiries. It does not appear that there's an investigation going on, but maybe there will be. Certainly the, the conservatives would, would love to see that. The other thing to keep in mind though is, I think is kind of the nature of political scandals. And what is it that can be a really damaging thing to a politician and in my experience over the years, if a politician gets caught lying in their own pockets, like stealing the public's money or something mm-hmm. like that, that's obviously game over. Terrible scandal that no politician is likely to survive. That's not the case here in this one with Trudeau. The other one is if there is some egregious example of the public's money being wasted, like the notorious $16 glass of orange juice mm-hmm. that Bev Oda bought, or in the British Columbia spending scandal we saw at the provincial legislature, $5,000 spent on a wood splitter. You know, some a graphic example of waste. Mm-hmm. That drives people up the wall. On this one with SNC-Lavalin, it's more of a process scandal. It's kind of more of a technocratic kind of thing and doesn't seem to be registering as as uh, as, as much as a damaging way with the public as some of these other ones, and, and Trudeau is certainly hoping that that's a, it, it stays that way.
0: It's going to just going to go, uh, just going to go wash under the bridge, and uh, no, nothing to see here, folks. I wanted to ask you an ethics question that I don't know whether you can answer for me, Mike. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Jody Wilson-Raybould and the fact that she admitted to have been contacted by the Mounties right. uh, early, earlier this year in February. Would she uh, be allowed? Because she hasn't said stuff to us, even in that inquiry in front of the Justice Committee, that she wants to say because she has been bound by cabinet confidentiality. When the RCMP come knocking at your door uh, for a sit down chat, would she still be bound by those rules when the police are involved?
5: Oh, I I, I suspect she would be, Sterling, that, you know, that sort of cabinet confidentiality requirements would, would, would trump everything. But okay. this is another one that I think is potentially damaging for Trudeau. I mean, we saw the other day at the, at the Federal Ethics Committee in Ottawa how the Conservatives and NDP MPs in that committee actually wanted to interview Mario Dion, the Ethics Commissioner, uh, for precisely that reason, because he Dion had even said that because of these Cabinet confidences, confidence rules and secrecy, He was not able to get all the information that he wanted. That's true. So I think it was a legitimate thing to say, let's bring this guy in front of the committee and and ask him some questions about that. The liberals on that committee voted that down. That is not a good look for the liberals as this uh, scandal continues to fester. But like I say, Trudeau seems to be kind of sliding through here. And by the way... Trudeau, if you take a look at Trudeau's tactics here pre-election with the election rolling around in just a couple of months, he's spending money like crazy. Oh, boy. He's he's traveling across Canada, spending like crazy. I, I added them all up here in British Columbia just the other day since the start of July. There have been 59 separate spending announcements just in British Columbia. Over two billion dollars worth of spending announcements from the Liberal government here. I mean that is classic old school politics. But you can see how Trudeau is just splashing that money around right now as he hopefully tries to weather this uh, scandal. And the Lib- and the Conservatives just hoping that this thing can somehow, some way, stick to him. But so far it doesn't seem to be.
0: I wonder how many voters are going to go. Yeah, that's a very nice promise of X number of million dollars for this, that, and the other thing, but of course, it's all borrowed money. We're broke. I wonder how much of that's going to be thought about. Uh, the uh, the Maodis, uh typically, as you say, don't really get into much detail at all as to whether they've even taken on the assignment, but you know that there's going to be enormous pressure on them from uh, all sorts of angles to at least acknowledge the file and do something about it or not. What do you think, Mike? Well, I think the Maude's are under a lot of pressure here.
5: Well, I guess they're under pressure, but they're they're under no obligation to uh, investigate just because Andrew Shear sure. calls for an investigation. I mean, Shear's trying to do his best to kind of take fullest advantage of this thing. And when he did his news conference the other day, calling for this uh, criminal probe, he had a, a big blue sign on the front of his podium that said "Honest Leadership," mm-hmm. and that is clearly going to be. A theme that he wants to hammer home with voters in the run-up to this election in October that Trudeau is a guy who's been rung up twice now on conflict of interest violations this is a scandal that the public should be angry about and upset about and that the government should be held accountable and punished for it I mean you know the other opposition parties are going to pile on too. Elizabeth May who's on a little bit of a roll here with the mm-hmm. Green Party. She is calling for a criminal investigation of Trudeau as well. So it's not just the conservatives going after him. But right. I just find extraordinary, though, when you take a look at some of these polls. And like I said, again, we got to have the caveat that these polls can be wrong and they can change. But when you take a look at it, it just looks like maybe Trudeau is going to slide through here. And... This is a guy who is a good campaigner. We saw how he did, he sort of lit it up in the last election four years ago. He could very well do it again. And this is a government that's taken full advantage of its incumbency by, like I said, Sterling, they're spending money like water right now. Like, billions and billions of dollars in government spending announcements here day after day after day, and it's not going to stop.
0: I was just going to say, and we're not even in the actual election cycle yet, Mike.
5: No, no, no. So, I mean, there's lots more spending to come. And by the way, I mean, every time Trudeau drops into any, any town or city across Canada to make another spending announcement... Uh, you can bet that he'll take the opportunity to go to a Liberal Party fundraising event sure. while he's there. So the Liberals are furious about that. They say this is just campaigning on the public's dime. This is just trying to bribe voters with their own money. But every party does it. Trudeau seems to be (laughs) just particularly good at it right now.
0: And you've been around the block on this game for uh, more than a few years, as have I. And uh, it's pretty easy to uh, define a pattern, a a bit of a depressing pattern, frankly, Mike, Mm -hmm. over the the decades that you and I have been observing politics across Canada. Canadian voters have a rather uh, strong habit of leaning towards and indeed voting for the party that offers them the most goodies.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, the incumbent government in any election typically has an advantage as long as the economy is going okay. And certainly, you know, we're not on an economic firehouse here in, in Canada right now. We're not doing too bad, though, I guess, mm-hmm. all things considered.
0: And Pretty Trudeau, even keel. yep. Yeah, I mean, Trudeau... Except, except, except of course, of that, on the de- deficit whenever, side.
5: Whenever he pops in to spend this money, you can bet that a lot of the, the local Liberal MP will be standing beside him, all smiles. The other day, for example, was a Liberal MP here in British Columbia on hand for the awarding of over $3 million to local berry farms to improve the quality of blueberries, raspberries, and strawberries on B.C. berry farms. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's just a coincidence that there's an election in a few weeks. I mean, this kind of stuff goes on all the time, you know, and you can bet that Trudeau is going to keep flying around the country, keep spending money, keep talking about protecting jobs. The con- Andrew Scheer is going to have to do more than just hope that this SNC-Lavalin's Scandal sticks to Trudeau. He's going to have to offer Canadian voters something else to vote for as well, I think.
0: I agree with you, Mike. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, uh, Mr. Shear's biggest difficulty so far from where I'm sitting is being able to reach people. He is so terrified of offending anyone. He just is so guarded and careful with his language. His first reaction to the Ethics Commissioner's uh, findings was Justin Trudeau has been caught up in false. Hoods. Now, who on earth speaks like that? The guy lied. How about that, Andrew? How about we start there? Get real. And he's just, I think, afraid to be real.
5: Well, Sheer has got a bit of a deficit in the charisma department going up against Trudeau. I mean, Trudeau's got the, the charisma thing going for him. Sheer is not the most exciting politician we've ever seen in Canada, but you know what? That doesn't mean he can't win. I mean, we've Neither had was Harper politicians be successful before. Stephen mm-hmm. Harper wasn't exactly very charismatic guy, and and he did pretty well. So we, we've seen in the past that you don't have to be a charismatic politician and look like a movie star to win. You you can defeat char- charisma if, if you have an effective campaign message. But I think what shear has got to do is you, he can't put all his eggs in this sort of SNC-Lavalin basket and just hope this scandal brings Trudeau down, because so far it doesn't look like it's going to. He's going to have to offer something else to Canadians to drive those votes over to his side, because I think for Shere, it's it's got to be a majority win or nothing. If this is a minority government uh, outcome. Outcome. I don't think Scheer can govern with a, with a, govern with a minority. Only Trudeau can do that. Shear has got to win a majority here if he wants to become prime minister in October.
0: Interesting. Well said, Michael Smith. Thank you so much for doing this with us on a Sunday afternoon, sir. Always good to have you on the radio. You bet. Anytime, Sterling. Mike Smith, post-media columnist with the Vancouver province and occasional talk show host on CKNW in Vancouver.